And I think we've come a long way. And I think, I hate to say it, but now COVID is our new norm at work, right? Like I feel very safe and comfortable at work now. And I, I hope the rest of America can get back to feeling comfortable at work, um, to learning how to live with this. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Okay, we're rolling. Uh, here we are today with a very, very old friend of mine. Sorry, not to give away our ages. We're not that old, but medium old friend of mine, a friend from college. Uh, we worked in the dining hall of a really weird summer camp together. Uh, she went on to much greater things than me because she is now a doctor saving lives all over town. And her name is Dr. Lisa Dabby. And I'm really, really honored and pleased to have her on the show today. Thank you, Noah. The pleasure is all mine. <laughs> so I promise I won't embarrass you with old stories of, uh, of summer camp. But uh, I should add that we are even adult friends. Our kids go to the same school together. Uh, we actually take them to that same camp now. So, you know, probably would actually say we're, we're much better friends today as adults than we, we were in our, in, our, uh, in our 20s. But we can save that for a different podcast. Everything's good. Everything gets better with age, right? Kind of like a good bottle of wine. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you though have really done remarkable things and it's been incredible to watch you through this whole crisis, uh, really just disseminate and, and give just such useful information to, to the American public, uh, obviously to friends from our community. Um, and I thought that while I typically discuss shows or I discuss businesses and I would just love to have your smart person opinion on, a, on all of these issues we face today. There's the pre-production where you sell the show ideas and set it up. There's the post-production where you, you know, kind of put all this stuff together, oftentimes in remote areas, but right smack dab in the middle of there, there's production. And it typically requires lots and lots of people to be together in oftentimes indoor environments that uh, just don't seem well-suited uh, to kill viruses. So, but there's also a need or a desire, I shouldn't say a need, but a strong desire to get back to some sense of normal, or as I do the air quotes, you know, quote unquote normal. Yeah. Well, I want nothing more than to see everybody getting back to our new normal safely. Right. And that's a big goal of mine is just to help teach everybody what I've learned about the virus and how to exist with the virus and stay safe. Well, I think that's really interesting the way you put it to exist with the virus, because even for the optimists, and I would like to put myself in that camp, it's not going away, right? So we're gonna have to find ways to, as you just really eloquently put it, exist with it. Yeah, so the truth is COVID's not going anywhere. Um, it's here, um, our numbers in LA are continuing to rise. Um, and I hate, I like to be an optimistic person as well, but the truth is, um, I think it's probably gonna be with us for at least another year and a half to two years until we have some effective therapeutic or a vaccination that works. And is that vaccination, and again, I'm not a scientist, so I'm just going to kind of crib from questions that, uh, that I've heard other, again, very wise people ask other people in your profession, but, you know, everyone's looking at this vaccine like that's the end-all be-all, but 
okay, a magical vaccine appears. I mean, there's got to be billions of doses all around the world. And who gets those doses if there's less than billions? And, you know, some people, as we well know here in American society, don't want to vaccinate. And so just having a vaccine seems like that's not even necessarily a solution. Right. Well, so, you know, if, if we can develop a vaccine, so, you know, for an RNA virus, there's never really been an effective vaccine developed. So we're starting with an RNA virus. And we have a lot of really smart people working very hard to produce a vaccine. So I do believe and I have faith that they're going to make one. The question is when. Um, and the question, as you eloquently brought up, is how do you mass produce it for the whole globe, right? Not just for America, but for every country. Um, so it's going to take time. And I think, you know, people who are optimistic are saying maybe if everything goes 100% smoothly, we'll see one in January. Um, We'll see. I, again, I'm not a virologist, <laughs> um, but I think as soon as we get a vaccine, as long as it's effective, it should. It should give us immunity and it should stop the spread. All right. Well, fingers crossed. But there's a, a year and a half is a long way away. You know, a week and a half <laughs> seems to be a long time in, in, in American life this day and in global life. So to even project out to a year and a half from now is uh, is... That's a, that's a tall ask, but we're going to live our lives and we're going to try and figure out, like you said, to exist with this. So I guess backing up, um, you know, I typically ask people what the light bulb, the light bulb for their business was, the light bulb for their show. That's not an appropriate question here, but I'd love to know when you first heard about COVID and I guess as a secondary part of that question, how often are you hearing about even other versions of things, maybe not quite to the level of COVID, but new viruses or even at a smaller level, oh, this weird new flu strain is coming out. And, you know, how do you know as a doctor to take that seriously, to not take that seriously? Or, you know, just what was your COVID experience? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, you know, over the last few years, we have seen other novel viruses, specifically MERS, SARS. Um, and in the medical profession, we're always kind of keeping our eyes open and getting prepared. Um, so for both of those, we were trained about them. We were screening people in the ER. You know, we had a question list that we went down to make sure we were picking up a case if it came in through our door, but they never really materialized in LA. So, you know, I've kind of gotten used to this idea of learning about novel viruses that are on the other side of the world that never quite surface for us in Los Angeles. Um, this was entirely different, right? So I first started hearing about COVID you know, around November, December, uh, with all the news coming out of China, there were a lot of case reports in a lot of medical journals, like the New England Journal of Medicine. And so we were all kind of learning about it, reading about it. But, you know, deep down, I felt like, okay, this is probably going to be similar to those other viruses like MERS and SARS that I'm going to get prepared for and hopefully never see. Um, and I remember, you know, first seeing it start to explode in Italy and having my heart just sink, um, seeing how overwhelmed that healthcare system got and just hearing about doctors having to make terrible decisions about who should live and who should die and trying to wrap my head about how I would, would I ever even be able to make that kind of decision if I was put in those shoes. Um, but still it was, you know, across <laughs> in another continent. Um, and then all of a sudden it was in New York. And I remember just as it was starting to pop up in New York, I remember the first shift, um, it was mid-March where I saw multiple patients on one night who all fit the perfect exact description that everybody else was reporting. You know, they were young, they were healthy, they came in, they were saying they couldn't breathe, and the chest x-ray looked like that classic COVID pneumonia. 
Um, and you know, my heart sunk cause I knew it was here. I knew it was, you know, I had multiple patients in one evening, which meant God knows how many other patients in the department potentially had it. And that was a scary moment just with the realization that COVID was here and it was a reality and to see how sick these people were. Um, and I think we've come a long way since then. Um, I think the first few weeks were really challenging uh, for the healthcare system, trying to prepare, trying to make more capacity, more beds, make sure we're able to take care of people. And also for us to figure out how to keep ourselves and our other patients safe, right? So you have a virus that you don't know much about, and yet you're trying to take care of these patients and yet not let anybody else get exposed, including yourself. So it's been a huge, it was a huge learning curve in that first month. Um, and I think we've come a long way. And I think, I hate to say it, but now COVID is our new norm at work, right? Like I feel very safe and comfortable at work now. And I, I hope the rest of America can get back to feeling comfortable at work, um, to learning how to live with this. Do you think it sounds, as you're describing it, it almost sounds like now we just accept, you know, the, uh, the whole airport security system that's been in place for the last almost 20 years. That's just what we do. Uh, and you, if you want to get an airplane, that's part of the deal. So do you imagine a lot of things that you've done to keep COVID out of your home, you know, and, and keep your workplace as safe as possible are just going to be normal forever, even after we have a vaccine? I hope so. I think there's a lot of good things like hand hygiene, you know, frequent hand washing. I think I've really trained my kids better now than ever, right? Like even when they go for a bike ride, they come in, the first thing they do is they wash their hands with soap and water. I think that's a great thing to carry on even past COVID. Um, I often wonder if we're going to carry on with the masks. You know, there's certain things um, like masks. Are we going to wear masks forever going forward? Will, will there be a day when we don't remember what it was like not to wear a mask? I don't know. Um, you know, in terms of physical, I like to say physical distancing instead of social distancing because you know, we still want to be social with each other, but kind of keep a physical distance. And I don't know how much that will carry on into the future as well, in terms of like, will we still have these large glamorous parties that we once had? I can't imagine people are going to shake hands, maybe right. ever again. That may seem like a relic of the past. Yeah. Yeah, it's very possible. I, these are all great questions. Right, right, right. So, okay. So you mentioned about your office, the hospital, <laughs> being safe and feeling safe. Um, a big concern, obviously, so much of entertainment takes place on a set, and we'll get to that, but a lot of it takes place in an office. You know, the people who are making these shows, selling these shows, uh, movies, what have you, and the networks that are, you know, writing big checks for them, those are in office environments that would look not that too dissimilar to kind of any, like a lawyer's office or, any, you know, any kind of office. Um, some of them are much nicer than that. And, you know, a lot of these companies have plopped down millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of these, you know, building these unbelievable campuses that now I wonder, will people ever return to them? Um, you know, how, I guess there's twofold. Number one, can you make those campuses and those offices feel safe to people like, like you have in the hospital? And then there's more practically, do people actually need to be in them? You know, when we've now figured out how to do so much of our work remotely and over Zoom but that's a secondary issue. Just at the, the task at hand, how do you make an office safe? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. Um, and I think you can apply this to a lot of things, whether it's an office or a school or really any workplace. Um, you know, we have to just think about how, how many people are in one area and how we all interact with each other. So in general, I think you're gonna see more of 
temperature screenings at the door when you come in, um, universal masking policies, right? Everybody is going to have to wear a mask um, at all times. Um, and then this idea of really having people be together only if they need to be together, right? If you don't need 20 people in a room, then they shouldn't have 20 people in a room. A way to make people, for the most part, keep a physical distance from each other, um, unless they need to be in closer proximity to each other. Um, so I think those are kind of some of the basic premises, um, seeing more hand sanitizer or soap or water everywhere, right? People learning to kind of just anytime they touch their face, wash their hands, um, trying not to touch each other, like you mentioned, not shaking hands, not even doing, sorry, it kills me. So instead of shaking hands, people are doing elbow bumps or knee bumps. And the truth is we shouldn't be doing, we shouldn't be touching each other at all, right? <laughs> Keeping six feet apart from each other um, so that we're not sharing those germs. Um, but I think, you know, you'll see in markets, you've already seen the putting up um, those plexiglass shields um, to protect the salespeople. And I think that's a great idea because there's so many people that come through every day in this way. They are not exposed at all. Um, if a patient sneezes in their face or coughs in their face, they, it's almost like they're wearing a permanent face shield, um, so to speak. So I think there's a lot of really innovative things that are being made that are going to help us all keep safe. But I also think we need to find a new way to get back to being productive and back to work and, you know, I, I do think there's a way to make your environment safe to go back to work. Now, the question about efficiency and whether it's more efficient to work from home, I think is a whole different topic, right? Yeah. That I <laughs> yes, I think you're here to just say, to present the option of how you could plausibly make it safe should companies want to do that. Right. And I think, sorry, no, I should mention that at the end of the day, there are people who are more high risk than other people. And so if you are in a certain age range or if you have certain medical problems, whether it be high blood pressure or um, asthma or diabetes, I think those individuals are gonna have to risk stratify themselves. Like is going into the office worth me taking the risk of getting exposed? Because we know that there are certain individuals that have a higher risk of a worse outcome if they get COVID. And I think that's something that each individual, you know, you're gonna have, people who are going to have to make choices. Is it worth taking a risk to go expose myself to people when I'm higher risk of having a bad outcome? All right. So let's talk about the set itself, right? Where things are actually shot. Things are, you know, not all production, you know, there's certainly some things can be very contained, you know, one person documentary style. Obviously you, know, you could do something like animation and there's, right. There's no set for that. Um, and you could do that very safely, but in your typical, it's a bunch of actors or it's a bunch of human beings, you know, together on a set, like how does that look going forward, at least in the short-term future? I mean, everything from, you know, I think no more buffet lines, sure, but two actors in a scene together, you know, or if you think about like a big reality show, like a, you know, big competition thing where they're all living in a house together or on some desert island, like can that work? Or does that just have to just basically be put on pause for the next year and a half? So I think it can work. Um, I think Hollywood has its own specific set of challenges that it faces trying to get people back on set. Um, but here, let's go through a couple of things. So in general, a set is used to having a lot of people in really close proximity. So there's gotta be a way to kind of change our behavior to still be able to shoot two or three actors on set without having a hundred people on the periphery, right? So first start by just 
really only having the people who need to be there, eliminating any unnecessary people, um, having people as physically spread out as possible, right? And then you have to think about how many high touch surface areas you have when you're shooting. So unfortunately you have a camera, you have lighting, and there's so many different people adjusting the lighting or moving the camera. And so you've got to stop and think about all these, uh, what we call them as <clears throat> high frequency touch surfaces, right? And try to find a way to not have so many people touch those same surfaces, right? So maybe the camera man has to move his own camera instead of somebody moving it for him. Or maybe there's gonna be somebody walking around and wiping down surfaces after people touch it, right? Just to keep everything nice and clean and sanitized. Um, but finding a way to minimize multiple people touching the same object uh, so that we don't share germs as much. Um, you mentioned the buffet lines, right? So shared meals are a thing of the past, right? These big, like, beautiful meals that are, everybody shares and eats from are gone. Um, you know, you've got to bring in what we do at the hospital. People have been very generous. I should thank everybody who sent us meals. But what we do is we get individual meals so that everybody, nobody is sticking their same hands or breathing over each other's food. Everybody has their own little dish and they go and they sit six feet apart from each other when they eat so that we're not breathing because you have to take off your mask when you eat. So you don't want to be breathing or sneezing or coughing in someone's face when you're eating. Um, and then I think a very special population on the set are going to be like your hair or makeup artists, um, you know, because they have to get up in someone's face. They're putting on the lipstick, they're putting on the eyeliner, and clearly those individuals should be wearing something like a face shield. Right, so that's what we do. Not that I wanna make Hollywood like the ER, but I can say that I have been up face-to-face -face with multiple COVID patients, yet didn't get COVID. And the reason is I understand how the virus works and I know how to protect myself. And so we have to teach people in Hollywood, or not just Hollywood, everyone, how to protect themselves, right? If you understand how the virus is transmitted and you know how to protect yourself, then there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to. So. People who are going to be up close, you know, you have to putting lipstick on an actress's face. That person's not wearing a mask. So the person applying the makeup should be wearing a face shield. A mask, maybe eye protection, and a face shield just to completely protect them. And then they're in their own, so to speak, bubble. And so the virus, which enters your body through your mouth, your nose, your eyes, as long as those areas are covered, it can't enter, right? Um, so thinking about, like, empowering and educating all the different roles to understand where they're getting exposed and how to change their behavior so that they don't get exposed or if they do get exposed, they're safe because they've protected themselves. I think that should be the goal for Hollywood. And I do think, I do think it's possible to get back to production. Um, I've also heard, and this is a whole other issue that people are trying to figure out is, do you test everyone before you start, right? Do you have people quarantined for two weeks and then come in and get tested and then, you know, UFC is doing this. A lot of uh, athletic organizations are doing this. Because um, if you can test before you start and pull out people who are asymptomatic, then you're kind of starting on the right foot in terms of not bringing anybody in to the set or to the environment that's sick. And then it's going to be very important to kind of daily screen your set or your crew for symptoms and also be able to contact trace. So... I don't know if there's a way to put people in pods or make people share the same bathroom so you know who's kind of sharing surfaces with other people. But if you have the ability to contact trace, then if somebody gets sick, you're able to just pull out the people that were exposed to that individual instead of having to shut down the whole set, right? So that's another really important concept. 
um, is trying to figure out how we kind of, whether we have people interact in pods or in groups so that we know. We know that person A only interacts with B, C, and D. And so if one of those people gets sick, then you pull that group out instead of shutting everything down. Well, and it sounds like you stick people with their, right, with, there are crews, right? There's your A crew, your B crew, whatever. I mean, literally there's no trading ever and no real interaction between those, those groups right. ever, right? Well, that works. So then if you can do that, if you keep people in, sequestered in their own little pods, and if one person gets sick in that pod, then you pull that pod out um, and everybody else can continue filming. But what about when they're not working, right? I mean, a lot of these film not in Los Angeles, right? People are, like I said, deserted island somewhere or on location somewhere. Or frankly, even if they are here in Los Angeles, right? You've got the 12 hours they're working and 12 hours they're not. And in the 12 hours they're not, they're either home with their family or, or the roommates or whatever. Or if you're on location, they're doing whatever they're doing when they're off. Like, how do you, how do you plausibly control that? Do you just say, if you're signing up for this show, for the next month, you're going to have to abide by these kinds of sort of lifestyle rules? Yeah. So this is going to be something that all the guilds and all the different organizations are of going course. to agree on. Um, but ideally, I think if you have people committing to a shoot, you're asking them when they're not at work to quarantine or self-isolate at home, to not go to a restaurant or hang out at the market, maybe have your groceries delivered, but really like asking them to limit their interaction with the rest of the world when they're working on this production. Um, at the end of the day, it's not, it can't be perfect. It can't be a hundred percent, which is why it's so important for people to just understand how the virus spreads and understand how to protect themselves. Because I really do believe you can't screen everybody every day. You can try, it's going to be very hard. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think you're almost better off assuming everyone around you has it, right? And if you assume everyone around you has it and you take those precautions to keep yourself safe, then you should be able to do it successfully if you understand how to keep yourself safe. But I guess to that point, if we're presuming everyone has it, um, you're getting tested on day one. You're saying it probably doesn't make sense to test on days two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I guess are we just testing on day one? just as a baseline and maybe for insurance protocol or peace of mind? Like, so I think it's a great question, right? Like I think you test on day one and you're hoping to, and maybe you don't just test on day one. Maybe you test every three or five days, right? You figure out something that's feasible and um, that we have the capacity to perform, right? A big problem that we're seeing right now is that a lot of facilities don't have the testing capacity that we need. Um, so, you know, again, you test, you're hoping to find the person who is either asymptomatically spreading the virus or the person who has the virus, but they haven't developed symptoms yet. So in those first few days, and that's the trickiest part of this virus, is that it starts to shed and it starts to spread before the person even knows they're sick. So we call that the pre-symptomatic phase, where you're spreading it to everybody you're interacting with, but you don't even know you have it. And then, you know, Two days later, you have a fever and body aches and you're in bed, um, but it's too late. You've already interacted with hundreds of people. So you're really hoping to capture those people um, and pull them out before they expose other people by testing people with no symptoms. Now, how often do you do this is a good question. Um, I think testing will become more easily available. I think testing turnaround times will be faster. So we may get to a point where we're testing every day. I think right now that's not a reality. Uh, it's very hard to do that right now. Um, so maybe it makes more sense to do it 
every week or every five or seven days. Or again, if you have a small crew and they're going to a desert island and there's nobody else on that desert island, you know, you test all these people when you get there. Um, and then it's just them. They're not interacting with anybody else, right? That's almost ideal. Right. Yeah. I mean, what I'm really hearing from you, uh, safety coordinator is going to be a very crucial role on all of these. People are going to have to be willing to work um, less efficiently. I mean, in teams, right? Less, you know, just being honest with what's essential, you know, who do you essentially need to be with and just operating more as covert units, really. And I guess the buyers are going to have to be okay with maybe spending more money in order to have things done in a more safe, though less time efficient kind of way to get the end product that, they ex- that they've come to expect. Yeah, and I think we have to remember that hopefully this will be temporary, right? Like hopefully we will have either a vaccine or some therapeutic in the next one to two years. Um, so this isn't forever, but I think in the interim, we really have to be safe. And even if that means spending, it's gonna be spending more money because you have to now um, have personal protective equipment, you need to have better hygiene, whether that's cleaning people who are circulating the set all day long, wiping everything down. Uh, safety mongers is what we call them in the hospital that just kind of watch. They're there to make sure everybody keeps safe. They kind of will point out if you're doing something unsafe, um, you know, whether or not you have a nurse or doctor on set screening people. You know, it's gonna it's gonna cost more money, but I think the money is well worth people's safety and people's livelihood, right? We just we don't want to lose people. Yeah, pay now or pay later, right? Right. And yeah, I think people would much prefer to pay now. Um but I guess that is the big debate happening right now is people want to reopen the economy and, you know, want things to be back to normal. I think it's partially driven by just being stir crazy, but it's also partially driven by economics, right? And people needing to make money, you know, and I guess as we, as, as we enter the summer, um, and it's a whole new sort of rhythm for any working parent and for families, like what kind of advice do you have as we head into the summer? I mean, people are gathering in groups, even if they're small groups in their backyard, they're doing things now that they weren't doing even a month ago. And, you know, unless maybe, um, uh, I, I want to be careful with my words here, but in other parts of the country, people are partying, um, you know, and, and doing things that are seemingly pretty irresponsible. Um, but we could have more outbreaks. We could have all these kinds of things because COVID, at least in this exact moment in time, has become actually the secondary story in the news. Um, but can we afford to take our foot off the brakes? Yeah, no, uh, it would be absolutely the wrong thing at this time to take your foot off the brakes. It's still here. It's still spreading. It's still as big of a risk as it was on day one. Um, but I think you're right. I think people have fatigue. I think they're tired of being pent up in their houses. Um, and I get it. I have three kids and I'm tired of being stuck at home with them as well. Um, but at the same time, I know that I'm not willing to take certain risks and expose my family and myself. So, you know, again, it comes back to learning a new way to interact um, and I think I think it's okay to do things with another family or with some friends as long as you're mindful of the social distancing guidelines, right? So if you're going to spend time with people, try to do it outside. It should only be in small enough groups, one, two other people where you can keep your distance, right? Like I can see you and we can hang out, you know, across the grass and interact from a distance and not share food and not share drinks. Um, and just kind of relearn how to interact with each other 
um, without being physically right next to each other or touching the same surfaces. And so I think we're going to have to rewire ourselves um, to develop new behaviors and habits. But I think it's doable. And I think it's, it's just learning to reset and start by just being mindful. Like, again, coming back to understanding the virus, how it spreads, and how to keep yourself safe. And so if you know the virus enters your body in three spots, and you know how to protect those spots, your eyes, your mouth, your nose, and you know how to keep your hands clean and pay attention, be mindful when you're touching surfaces that other people are touching and washing your hands right after, there's no reason why we couldn't all protect ourselves. But it's kind of rewiring these habits that are so innate. So what would your advice be specific for anyone who's listening here who has children, you know, as children are harder to teach that and children are antsy and children want to see their friends and children are little germ factories. And, you know, is there going to be school in the fall? What's that going to look like? I mean, I know this is an entertainment podcast, but now I think a lot of working parents have had to face that juggle, right? I'm amazed that no kid has come into this conversation yet between the five that we have between ourselves. Although my dog is, is over my right shoulder slurping up some water. But, uh, you know, yeah, what's a summer without camps look like? What's, you know, what does a fall with a different kind of school system look like? I mean, I don't know. You're not, I know you're not an educator. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm really struggling with no camps, right? I'm, I'm the mom who always sends her kids off to camp every day that I can. Um, so, you know, my husband and I talk about it a lot. It's for us, it's not worth. Um, you know, kids, you can't really teach them. I have a five-year-old and you can't teach her to keep her distance and you can't teach her not to share um, her, her drink. As much as I try, she's just not able. And so, you know, for my husband and I, it's not worth, like, we'd rather have our kids home and take care of them than risking exposing our kids to a bunch of other kids of whom we don't know what parts of the city they're coming from and what they're, you know, I think for every family, you have to kind of look at the risk that it would bring to your household. Um, and so I'm trying to embrace that I get to slow down this summer and spend more time with my kids, right? Whether it be taking them by themselves hiking or by themselves to the beach. Um, I think a lot of families are coming up with this concept of making a bubble um, where they interact with one or two other families and they rotate uh, having a camp at those houses. And I think that's an interesting idea. I think everybody just has to be ready that if one person gets sick in the bubble, pretty much everybody's going to be sick in the bubble. Um, and again, it comes back to who lives in your home. Is it okay if you guys get sick? I mean, nobody wants to get sick, but do you have elderly? Do you have people who are immunosuppressed where it would be a much bigger deal if they got sick? Um, but at the end of the day, I think each family is going to have to figure out what works for them and how much risk they're willing to take. But, you know, I think for us, like my kids have a few friends that we have started to see from a, so, you know, we hike with them and we take walks with them and everybody's keeping their distance and everybody's wearing their mask and we're outside and we're not eating together and we're not using the same bathrooms. We're not going into each other's homes. Um, so it's nice. It's, it's very refreshing to see people and to interact with people. I think that's healthy for the soul. Um, but I think there are ways to do it safely. Bike rides, bike rides are a great way. You know, you're keeping your distance, you're on different bikes, um, you know, being on the beach, not on the same blanket, but on different blankets and going to the ocean. Um, I think there are ways to do things safely. You just have to be mindful again about what you're doing and, you know, um, just thinking, being on top of the kids, right? Like I feel comfortable when I'm around my kids, having them around other kids because I'm watching them. And when they touch other things, I just give them some hand sanitizer and we're done, right? And so if everybody had a safety monitor with them, (laughs) watching their kids, watching what they're touching, being on top of them, 
Well, can I can uh, can I hire you as as our safety monitor? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, gosh, I remember a few years ago you told me that um, you know one of the things you had to do a lot in the ER was was uh, remove splinters from from tourist feet that would walk barefoot on Santa Monica Pier. I'm sure you missed those days. Oh, I do miss those days. <laughs> I miss seeing you know all we see in the ER right now. You know, just if everybody feels like their business is suffering, you would think that healthcare would be booming right now. And the irony is that healthcare is also suffering, right? So um, ER volumes are down because everybody's so scared that if they come to the ER, they're going to get COVID. <laughs> um, and so I miss seeing the people with splinters. I miss seeing, you know, all these injuries that we're used to taking care of that people are now, I guess, figuring out either how to take care of themselves or maybe they're at home and they're not getting hurt. Um, but I do, I do miss those big Santa Monica splinters. <laughs> well, I'll make sure to go do something reckless soon. Thanks. Um, well, one thing that, you know, I jokingly said you should be my safety monitor, but obviously you're very well informed and you know so much about this topic. Uh, you touched on earlier the testing, right? And I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, bring up ModMD, which is a new service I know you and your sister, also a doctor, have created that I think could help a lot of people with this exact problem that we face. Yeah, so my sister and I um, have started a company called ModMD, and we're basically bringing testing to you, whether it's your home or your business or your set. Um, we're able to bring nurses who are registered nurses who are very experienced in doing COVID testing um, to come to your office or come to the set and test the whole crew. And we can do up to 400 tests in a day and get those results back within 24 hours, which is um, pretty amazing. And hopefully we can keep that up. So we are available, and if anybody's interested, um, they can email info at modmd.org, and we can get you set up, and we can send you some pitch decks and so on and so forth. We are doing both nasal PCR, which is the Q-tip that goes up the nose to determine if you have COVID at this time, and the blood serology antibody testing. So it's a blood draw to see if you have antibodies to this. Why, why would anyone choose the Q-tip up the nose? So the Doesn't it go pretty far? Um, so the initial one that we were using was the nasopharyngeal that actually goes all the way up. Um, now we're using the intranasal, which only goes about an inch up into the nose. At the current time, that's the most accurate testing. Um, there's a lot of research underway right now to see if saliva, just spitting in a cup or a swab in the mouth, um, would be as accurate. We're still waiting to see that data. Well, you're amazing. I'm so happy to have you in our orbit so that I can ask you all these questions over via text. Um, but, uh, you know, I just thank you. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you just for all the information that you're dispensing. It's super responsible uh, and measured, um, but also realistic. And people need to hear that, right? That there's not just going to be some magical fairy that kind of cures everything tomorrow. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't want to be the buzz killer, but I think it's really important that people don't let their guard down yet. Right. And I think we're going to have to be uber careful as we head into the winter um, with the flu season. So I really hope if I could put in a pitch for people to get their flu shots, this is the year to do it. Right. Because this is um, it's going to be the double whammy because um, I, I do think that we uh, are at risk of another wave or another spike of COVID at the winter time. And coupled with the flu, I think that can be really a profound impact on our hospitals. Well, let's, uh, let's all hope for the best, knock on wood, that, that people do take care of themselves, heed your advice, get their flu shots, and that we all somehow emerge from this stronger and better than we were before. We will. We're going to get through this. All of us together as a community, we're going to do it. I love it. Thank you so much, Lisa. Stay safe. Give your kids a hug for me. 
your husband a high five, a high five. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much for being a part of this. No more high fives, but I will, I will. No, but it's your husband. You can give him oh, a high five. I my husband on your Yeah, phone. that's <laughs> I, the high five for me. That's right. I'm not giving him a high five. Are you crazy? <laughs> We're high risk over here. Yeah, no chance. Yeah, so, but thank you so, so much. Yeah, my pleasure, Noah. Thanks for having me. Stay safe, be well. Anytime, thank you. So there you have it. The full story of resuming production in the summer of COVID-19. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you as well to our guest, Dr. Lisa Dabby, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind. <laughs>